0: Hey guys, this is Sean Fennessy. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Ringer and host of The Big Picture Podcast. Oscar season is ramping up, and so is The Big Picture. That's why we're moving out of Channel 33 and into our own feed. We're going to keep bringing you more banter about this year's Oscar contenders and more deep conversations with the filmmakers behind them. So to hear more from your favorite directors and the movie-obsessed staff of The Ringer, subscribe to The Big Picture on Apple, Spotify,
1: or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Feels like I only go backwards, baby. This is The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I am a staff writer at The Ringer. Joined, as always, for these playoffs by Ben Lindbergh. Hello. And Zach Cram. Hello. I apologize for basketball-related reasons. We're recording a little later in the day, which means the sun is setting here over the state of Michigan and perhaps over the Los Angeles Dodgers as well. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) I worked it. I worked that out ahead of time. I played that out at least half half an hour ago. Um, So let's let's start there. The Red Sox are up two nothing in the World Series. Game three is on Friday, game four, Saturday, game five, if necessary, on Sunday. Rick Porcello versus Walker Bueller is the scheduled uh, starting pitching matchup for game three for game four. Uh, my guess would be Nathan Eovaldi versus Rich Hill, although neither side has confirmed their starting pitcher as of the time of recording. Uh, game five, if necessary, Sale versus Kershaw. So my first question, uh, this is sort of how I found myself thinking about these playoff series. I, What is the path back? If the Dodgers come back, what does it look like?
2: Well, I think this is obvious. It involves winning game three because... They're not going to come back from 3-0 against a team that won 108 games. Even now, it's a long road ahead. I think throughout the regular season, the Red Sox lost four times in five games just once, and that was back in June. But if the Dodgers win game three behind Walker Bueller, who has been really good in these playoffs outside like a two-batter stretch against Atlanta, then they do have a path back because who knows what Boston's starting pitching uh, situation will look like in game four. Nathan Ivaldi has pitched in relief each of the last two days, so I'm not sure. Maybe they'll do some sort of bullpenning day like Craig Council, but if there's a path back, I think that's the one where they have a pitching advantage in game three with Bueller versus Porcello and could have a pitching advantage in game four, then it's two to two and who knows what happens from there.
1: Yeah, it's hard to avoid this sounding like one of those things that pops up on the broadcast where it says keys to the game and the keys are like limit the other team's scoring, score lots <laughs> of runs, score more runs than the other team scores. That's kind of what it boils down to because we're talking about a single series here. And so how the Dodgers get back in the game is they win a couple games in a row. I mean, you know, they've done that however many times this season. They're still a really good team, and I don't think we should lose sight of that based on the fact that Boston had a commanding couple games, I would say, in Fenway. And, you know, the final scores weren't blowouts or anything, but it it almost just felt like even when the Dodgers did have leads, That they didn't really, that they were kind of coming from behind. And I think that has a lot to do with just the Red Sox onslaught with two outs and runners in scoring position and all the clutch hitting, which we can talk about and break down. But The Dodgers are going back to L.A. They're going back to more temperate weather. I don't know whether being in the cold of Fenway actually had an effect on them, although they looked pretty uncomfortable to the eye. But ultimately, it just boils down to the Red Sox are having all of this incredible success at the moments when it matters most. And even though they've sustained that throughout the postseason and really throughout the regular season, I'm still not sure I buy it as a special skill and thus it could go away at any time.
0: Saying they have to win game three is like that sounds reductive and obvious, but that doesn't mean it's wrong like there, if if they lose then if they lose game three then it's really just a matter of when versus as opposed to if and this is a pitching matchup i don't think i'm quite as high as bueller on these in these playoffs as you are. I think he struggled a little bit more in game three against uh against the brewers than um than the line's gonna look like and I don't know that I ever felt completely comfortable with him in game 7 but with that said I I'd, I'd pick him over pretty Ricky. Um I mean they just need to get something going and th- that that sense of inevitability like the sense of the the Red Sox just being this large weight that that eventually is just going to overcome you. I mean, it, it was, that's what the first two games felt like. And if, if they do pick up game three, then the true then we start talking about that truism of uh, the series doesn't start until the home home team loses a game, despite Zach's evidence to the contrary. Um, and anything can happen if it's, if the series is to within one game, but yeah, I mean, this, this is a series game
1: three. And maybe it helps to get the lefty bats back in the lineup from the first inning on. I mean, I I don't know that Dave Roberts is making a mistake by not starting Muncie or Bellinger and having these guys come in in the middle of games. I mean, it's kind of what the Dodgers have done all year, and it's gotten them to this point. And at some point in every game, they use just about everyone available. But... I think that they are a better hitting team generally against right handed pitching. And to be able to get these guys in the lineup and have the platoon advantage from the get go, I think probably positions them better than having to do the mid game substitution roulette that they've been doing in Boston.
0: I don't think they're going to change the way they're approaching everything, but they're down 0 2 in the World Series and Max Muncie's batted three times. And he's probably one of their two or three best hitters. You just got to get him in the lineup more than that.
2: The interesting thing about this situation is, I I, I guess it partly depends on how you measure process versus results, but something that we've talked about throughout these playoffs is I would just be starting Muncie against left-handers and not David Fries at all, but in the World Series so far, David Fries is three for five with the walk. He's not the reason they're losing. He's the only player who's had a single at-bat for the Dodgers who has an OPS above 696, and that's Matt Kemp, who's the other hitter you would say maybe he shouldn't be playing at all so even if you want to quibble with the process that's not why they're losing necessarily they're just not getting any hits from the players who you would want to be playing from Manny Machado who had three RBIs but you know doesn't necessarily have the at-bat quality that you're looking for at this point or Justin Turner who hasn't really gotten going Yasiel Puig, Chris Taylor like none of these guys has put together a couple productive at-bats in a row and when, the I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about whether the Dodgers should be selling out for home runs or trying to string hits together, but they haven't really been
1: able to do either thus far. Yeah, and I'm writing something for TheRinger.com right now about, second guessing and first guessing and what we know and don't know and the information imbalance between teams and the public. And it's always a difficult thing because I think we're all aware that there are things we don't know that teams know. And sometimes we find out about those things after the fact, and sometimes we never do. And so you don't want to be in a position where you're just deferring to the team in every case and saying, well, they probably know something. On the other hand, I think you have to be aware of what we don't know. And I trust the Dodgers' evaluation of Muncie, I think, more than I trust mine, given that we're just months away from my not knowing that Max Muncy was a major league player anymore. And I just, it's inarguable that Max Muncy was one of the best and most valuable hitters in baseball this year. But I think it's still entirely possible that he is not actually, true talent-wise going forward, one of the best hitters in baseball. And he did have some contact issues down the stretch. He's had 46 plate appearances in the postseason thus far. He's struck out in 20 of them. I don't know how much of that is the sporadic playing time. Maybe it's tough to get in a rhythm, but it just seems like from afar, the Dodgers may not have the same faith in Muncie that we do, just kind of looking at his single season stats, or maybe they don't like him as a defender at this point, or you never know. Maybe there's some kind of lingering issue and injury that is holding someone back that we'll just never find out about. So. I kind of have to hedge. I mean, it's strange to see a team with one of the very best hitters in baseball this year actively not using him in important spots. But I have to think that there's some rationale for that. That They've studied this, that they're not just sleeping on Max Muncie for no reason.
0: And every every argument we make about process is is sort of shrouded with the caveat that you were just talking about, that both of these teams know a ton of stuff that we and everybody in the public doesn't know um, with that said, that makes it tough to make the sort of process based arguments that are really the only only way to to make an intelligent and interesting critique of a team's performance uh, over as a sample as short as a best of seven series, so that sort of runs into the rest of my column coming off of game two, which is as reductive as it is to say that the Dodgers have to win game three. That's the key to the series without getting into how like the how is they just got to execute better. And mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's something that, that players and managers will, will say after games, we all sort of roll our eyes as if, but like, that's the whole story at this point, whether they start Muncie or or they've just got to hit. And, as we sort of shy away from that kind of analysis now, because I've said they just need to play better. And now we've got 38 more minutes of podcast to (laughs) to fill in. And, you know, I don't know that that anything we say after that is going to come closer to the truth than that.
2: It's an unsatisfying explanation, certainly, because we want to understand why what's happening is happening. And I think in this case, and most of these cases in particular, try to like, propose, oh, well, if you do this differently, then you might have a better outcome. Certainly, we've had a number of interesting strategic puzzles to discuss in these playoffs, from everything the Brewers did to Aaron Boone with the use of his starters versus bullpen in the Yankees series. But at least in the first two games so far, I think it's they've been fairly uninteresting from a strategic standpoint. Like, I saw some discussion about how, oh, Chris Sale and Clayton Kershaw being pulled in the fifth inning of, of game one is is indicative of how managers meddle now, but neither of them was pitching very well. Their pitch counts were high. I think even Strike five, zone or,
0: was weird, yeah, yeah. five
2: or ten years ago, the, the pitchers probably would have been pulled in those situations. Yesterday, uh, when Ryu was pulled in the fifth inning, he had just loaded the bases and had two hitters who mash lefties coming up. Of course you would pull him in that situation. It's not... Necessarily the right spot for Ryan Madsen, we could debate about that. But I, from a from a macro perspective, don't know if I see as many interesting starting points for discussion as we've had in other series in these playoffs.
0: There are elements of of moves that Roberts has made that I disagree with. Um, you know, just having the information that I have at my disposal now. Some of the moves he's made are not the moves that I would have made. But with that said, I don't think he's made an obvious team-killing error at any point during this series. I mean, everything he's done, whether I agree with it or not, has been on some level defensible. But, you know, you want to talk about how to prevent that rally. Ryu had two strikes on Christian Vasquez. And, like, (laughs) Ryu's a really good Major League pitcher. And if he can't put Christian Vasquez away, then... He deserves whatever comes to him. And even beyond that, he had four different chances or he and Madsen combined had four chances after that to stop that rally before they coughed up the up the lead. They didn't do it know, five straight batters reached. And I don't know, like this is not something that you need a supercomputer and a team of, of Harvard economists to figure out, like just get Christian Vasquez out and everything else will figure out itself.
1: Yeah, and no one's been getting out the Christian Vasquez's in the Red Sox lineup so far this postseason. Zach, you wrote about this. It's We're doing a good job of, of <laughs> plugging our written yeah. work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've seen Brock Holt, we've seen Eduardo Nunez, we've seen Christian Vasquez all come up with really big hits for Boston this postseason. And these are supposed to be the breaks in the lineup, the breathers, the easy outs. And if you can't get those guys out, then you're really in trouble because you still have to deal with Bogarts and Benintendi and Betts and Martinez. And those guys saying, aren't going away,
0: particularly
1: in this lineup. If you can't yeah.
0: get Nunez and Bradley and Vasquez out, then the like the guys you would who you would be taking a breather to save up your energy to face are particularly dangerous in Boston's lineup.
1: Right. Yeah. And can we talk about the the timing, the clutchness? You can talk about you-
0: whatever you want, Ben.
1: OK, good. So. The Red Sox have been incredible with two outs and runners in scoring position, if you want to break things down to that small a subset. I think in this postseason, they've had 55 plate appearances in those situations, and they have a 13-20 OPS. That's going to get you a long way, you know, provided that you get some guys into scoring position in the first place. You're going to drive them in, having that kind of success. So... That makes a team look unstoppable, I think, when that's happening. It just seems like they have some special power to repel outs once you get to two outs and They are just going to cash in at every opportunity, and that's been the case, and I think they deserve a lot of credit for, in most cases, having good at-bats in those situations. Yes, there's a little luck involved, and there's some defensive lapses on the Dodgers' part, certainly, but the Red Sox have had good plate appearances in those situations. They've had a good approach, and they've gotten the hits, and they've come up big, and that's great, but— I think even though they were able to do that pretty consistently throughout the regular season, there is always this lurking desire to make more of everything we see in the postseason. And so however one team wins quickly becomes either... It's like a bulwark against the new way that baseball works. If you listen to the Fox broadcast, which is kind of, I guess, on you if you do that, but you'd you'd get the impression that the Red Sox are this selective patient lineup and the Dodgers are just a bunch of hackers who can't make contact and care about. Their launch angles. I mean, the Dodgers are a really selective lineup, too. They're incredibly patient. They led the majors in walk rate. They didn't strike out a whole lot. They were in the middle of the pack in that in the majors this year. And I think they worked Chris Sale pretty good, too. They got his pitch count up. He wasn't great, but they made him labor. And I think that we look at the Red Sox and we say, well, they're a pretty good contact team. And that's how you win in the postseason. And they're showing this is the way to win. And I just don't think you can extrapolate from what has been a really incredible run thus far To this is a skill of this team, this is a permanent attribute, and this is how you should construct your teams if you want to win in the postseason, because we've so many times seen other ways to win in the postseason. And we saw the Indians and the Astros, who were the two teams with better strikeout rates than the Red Sox this season, they were out very quickly. And I just don't think you can say this is the factor.
0: The Astros actually out hit the Red Sox with with two strikes. They just right. didn't have the right situational contrivances to to score yeah. the Red Sox with or I'd say two strikes, I meant two outs. Yeah. Um, and the Red
1: Sox were a good contact team in the last couple of years in the right. last couple of postseason runs too, but they just didn't happen to put all their hits together at the perfect time. That's just not a, a replicable skill, I don't think.
0: The Red Sox were the best offensive team in baseball over all circumstances like this was they were the the best offensive team in baseball overall so it stands to reason that they would be at or near the top with two ats or with runners mm-hmm. in scoring position and you look at the guys you know their team-wide strikeout rate being down but even the guys they have who, who hit for power Betts and martinez and and bogarts don't really strike out a ton for hitting as as much for hitting for as much power as they do so but the same thing can be said for houston and you know, Boston took care of them. I think a lot of this is replicable insofar as the answer is build the best offensive team in baseball, one that hits for plus power without striking out a lot, which mm-hmm. is easier said than done. But you know, yeah, some of this is obviously cluster luck.
2: They also have, you know, as many strikeouts as the Dodgers do in this series They both teams have struck out 20 times. So even if you're trying to parse on such a, a small sliver of sample as two games like even there they're still striking out just as much as the Dodgers are so I'm not even sure if you can learn that much about their approaches from that total alone
1: Mm -hmm. yeah if you can then do what the Astros did last year when they won the world series they were the best at everything (laughs) they hit for the most power they had the best contact rate That's great. If you can assemble everything in one package, then by all means do that. But most teams can't do that. You have to be good at certain things and not as good at other things. And we know over the long history of baseball that it's okay to strike out in the long run if you also walk a lot and you hit a lot of home runs. I'm not talking aesthetically or from a spectator perspective. I'm just talking about producing runs. It's it's beneficial to do that in many cases. And I don't think that ability breaks down once you get to October.
0: And I think there's a preoccupation when we're looking for predicting postseason success with how. It, you know, it just. Ma- I, I don't know that it matters that much how a team wins as long as as long as you just put together enough talent to to hang at this level of of the game. Like this is Mm -hmm. not tactics don't matter that much in baseball the way that, you know, there's not a styles make fights element to to baseball the way there is in basketball or soccer or football. And so how you go about producing a lot of runs isn't as important as the fact that you just produce a lot of runs. It just so happens that the Red Sox have not struck out a lot. They've they've struck with two outs, you know, they I don't know these runs would count just as much if if they came with with no outs or, or one out, and so I, yeah. I, you know, I think dating back to you know you think of Nate Silver's secret sauce, and and right. going back generations beyond that, you think of of you know changing the way you play during the postseason, and mm-hmm. you know there are there are some elements like what Milwaukee did pumping their best pitchers into more innings because of the off days, you know, because of the higher stakes or no, no need to save anything. There are legitimate tactical adjustments that you make, but it's certainly, you know, particularly offensively, just get a bunch of good hitters together and let the rest take care of itself.
1: Yeah. And it is unsatisfying just to default to it's a crapshoot and it's all small sample. And so I understand why we want to impose some sort of order on this and say, this is why it's happening. It's not because this team happened to have a good couple of weeks at the right time. It's because they were constructed in such a way that they're able to take advantage of these conditions. But I just don't think it's the case. And we're just reaching really when we go beyond, hey, they're doing a good job and this is working for them right now to, hey, this is how every other team should do it and this is uh, an inherent skill that the Red Sox have. I, I just think that's too much and there's just no way around the fact that we're talking about five game series and seven game series and there's just only so much that you can use to predict that other than, well, this team is a bit better than that team and that should help them and yeah, maybe they can stack their starters and relievers in such a way that they're better than they were over the course of a regular season. But I think that's about as far as it goes. You can just rub
0: Jackie Bradley on the rest of his teammates and have his clutch (laughs) wear off because he hasn't hit that well this series himself, but you can see his his clutch presence permeating throughout the rest of the lineup.
2: I think zooming out, if you want to look at a team building perspective rather than a tactical one, if there's a lesson here, it's, I guess, just diverse in how you're collecting talent like JD Martinez obviously signed as a free agent the lesson there is pay players money I think that's a a good lesson to take but then they got Andrew Benintendi as the seventh pick in the draft because they were just terrible for a season Mookie Betts was a fifth round pick who turned into an MVP and they signed Xander Bogarts and Rafael Devers as international amateurs so they're getting contributions from a lot of different areas and I'm not sure if there's a lesson there because I think almost every team is trying to do that as well. So it's kind of unsatisfying from that perspective too. There's not like one secret way where they've assembled all of this talent. They, on the pitching side, had a lot of top prospects and traded them for Chris Sale, but then they also paid David Price $217 million. So the lesson, again, is just build a good team using all the methods you have available, which is what every team should be doing anyway.
0: If there is one specific thing that that I think you can do just beyond acquire talent, I think you know Mookie Betts in particular uh, is testament to scouting and player development, and you know they got second or third best player in baseball in the fifth round, and that's just incredible drafting and getting him. You know, I whether it was identifying those attributes that, like my personal favorite theory, is that his his being a great bowler is related to. <laughs> to his ability to hit, you know, just identifying stuff like that. And then cultivating that talent throughout the minor leagues or at the major league level, like they're getting more out of Nathan Eovaldi than anybody thought that they were going to. And so it's, you know, that's, it's kind of opaque. We don't see behind that part of the curtain within any reasonable timeframe of when it's actually happening. So it's, it's hard to, to really talk about. I do have, I do want to push back on the, the Fox thing a little bit, unless anybody's got something more to say about this. Sure. so, the reason, like, hitters aren't the reason that there are more strikeouts than ever in baseball. Like, mm-hmm. the, it, that's one thing that I share John Smoltz's frustration with the home run three true outcome heavy style of play in baseball. Although the fact that, uh, you know, the, the Indians, the Red Sox, and the Astros were the three lowest strikeout rate teams in, in baseball does show that making contact still has its own virtues. But the offensive style of play right now is not, the results of it, like it's a reaction to to pitching changing. Like mm-hmm. right now, you can pluck like Dylan Floro. Dylan Floro was was a college pitchability guy, and now he's you know throwing mid to upper nineties out of the bullpen out of nowhere in high leverage situations. Teams can can create a John Wetland out of nowhere. Then you've got to do weird things offensively. You can't play you you know you can't play twenty tens pitchers the way you did. 90s pitchers. It's just not going to work. It's a there are a whole different level of, of physical and tactical evolution beyond the game that Smoltz played in the 90s and 2000s. And so this just goes back to everything we sort of worry about with baseball, whether it's it's Tommy John or or, or the you know bullpenning or the opener, you know, all those those evolutionary steps that have made pitchers more dominant. They're throwing harder. They're throwing sharper breaking balls. They're throwing more breaking balls. They're Narrowing down their repertoires, you know, we see stuff like Lance McCullers throwing however many, you know, 26 straight knuckle curves. And in the ALCS last year, we see stuff like that. Pitching has become pretty close to optimized at this point with aesthetic and physical costs to it. But, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, launch angle or, or, or you know, the acceptance of strikeouts, like, I don't know that the causal arrow is backwards and you know, Joe mm-hmm. Sheehan was talking about this morning. I think made a, made a couple good points about, about the strikeouts are up because pitchers are really good and no matter what teams do, they're going to strike out a lot and that's just sort of the way things are and you're not going to fix that with hitting approach. You're going to fix Like the only way to fix that would be to make pitchers worse. And there's, you know, there's no rule change that you can really do to, to do that.
1: Yeah, I generally agree. I mean, I think there are multiple factors, and I think part of it is that there is a reduced stigma around strikeouts. I think there's a greater understanding that it's acceptable to strike out if you're striking out because you're patient and you're seeing lots of pitches and you're taking walks and you're swinging hard so that you'll hit home runs. I think in that sense, you could blame hitters or teams for how they're developing hitters because Guys aren't choking up and just trying to put the ball in play, and they shouldn't be because everything we know about offense suggests that in most situations, you should not do that. You should just hit the way you usually hit. So I think there's something to the idea that it's partly a change in approach that the hitters have made, but, but it's an intelligent approach. And mm-hmm. I think that you're right. It is mostly velocity. And, reactive. Yeah, and unhittable breaking balls. And I think it's time to move the mound back.
0: Yup. Good. I'm glad. All right. We got two people on team move the mound back there are now. 300 million to go. And we'll, we'll finally get some, some traction, but that's the only way to do this. And I don't, you know, it's only
1: fair. Pitchers are so much bigger yes, than they used to be for it, yes, one thing. exactly. They're releasing the ball closer to home plate than they used to be. So let's just move it back. I, I wrote about this a few years ago. All you have to do is move it back like a little bit, like a couple feet, and it really will have an appreciable difference in how fast the ball is moving when it gets to the plate and how much time hitters have to see and judge the trajectory and react to it. So I really think that would be a fix for a lot it of baseball ills. Yeah. Move it
0: back one inch a year for yeah. five years <laughs> (laughs) see what happens just to you know this doesn't have to be something that happens overnight I would say make the field bigger in general like the 90 feet you know (laughs) 90 feet from base to base is that was set when human beings were well all Zach Cram sized to not to put a too fine a point on it like Hank Aaron was the same size as Francisco Lindor is now, you know, Ted Kloszewski was the same size as Hanley Ramirez was the last time he stepped on a scale in a major league team's (laughs) office. And so like,
1: I am surprised that the 90 feet thing works as well as it as it does. It seems like it shouldn't still work so well. I, I know a lot of people cite that as like an example of baseball, just it's divine. It's handed Wah. down on clay tablets and it said 90 right. feet is the diff- distance that the, the bases shall be apart. And it wasn't like that. Like they arrived at 90 feet because they played with other distances and they didn't work as well. But yes. <laughs> I'm still surprised that given that guys have gotten so much bigger and faster and stronger, that that still works, that we have all these close plays. And I guess it's because things have countered each other and balanced each other out so that, you know, guys are faster runners, but they're also better fielders and have stronger arms and can make better throws. So it it all kind of cancels out. And
0: the other thing I would say is not only has the physicality of the the defense and the offense cancel each other out, you're going to get close plays at first on ground balls at some point, no matter how far apart the bases are.
1: True, so, yeah. <laughs> like, we don't if, know if they're right. more or less. Would there be than they used more be? more yeah. close
0: plays if if the bases were eighty three feet apart? Who's to say? So, mm-hmm. I think uh, a lot of this is just it's uh, folk medicine. You know this <laughs> this is just the farmer's almanac of sports, and it's so dumb sometimes. But man, Zach, you haven't talked in a while. Well,
2: I, <laughs> I I you can add me. We now have three people who think the mound should be moved back. But right. I do think going into to this podcast, I was thinking that the first two games up to a point reminded me of the first two games last year where I was writing a column. I remember I was sitting next to Michael at Dodger Stadium as Kenley Jansen was out for game two to give the Dodgers a 2-0 lead. I was writing a column about how could the Astros possibly come back. It seemed like the Dodgers were just dominating them and then Marwin Gonzalez hit a home run. The rest of that game turned bananas and we all know what happened from there yesterday night, kind of felt the same sense of in, of inevitability and then Craig Kimbrell did not blow a save. So now the Red Sox are up two to zero and they have us reinventing the entire sport. It's interesting to me. We
0: were doing this before the World Series.
2: <laughs> Fair. But it's interesting to me that well, obviously there are the, the series would have changed if the Dodgers had won last night, but even if they had made it look closer in the late innings, I think that would have changed the narrative coming out of that game, would have changed how we're talking about it because... I do think the Red Sox are going to win at this point. It would be hard to bet against a team that's up two to zero in a best of seven that is guaranteed to have at least one more home game no matter what happens in Los Angeles this weekend. But I don't think it's necessarily as inevitable as a lot of the, the takes coming out of last game have made it to be just because the Dodgers have looked about as bad as possible. If they keep that up, they'll lose, but they only have up to go from here and they've played well for most of the season.
0: That's very optimistic. <laughs> I don't know that I necessarily agree. Because, I mean, even the the Astros, I don't know that they they look this overwhelmed.
2: You don't think it's year. going back to Boston, do you?
0: I don't, know. Like I said, when I picked the Red Sox in six, I said I was sort of hedging. And after seeing the Red Sox go up to nothing, I guess if it goes back to Boston, it will necessarily be close enough that it'll be interesting to talk about on Monday's show. But that's that's really all. All, all my rooting interests now are what will make the most interesting podcast. So, but yeah, I don't think, I don't think this is going back to Boston. I mean, certainly not if, uh, if the Dodgers don't take care of business in game three, which again, I love saying obvious things, but it's the playoffs.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's maybe likelier that the Red Sox win two out of the next three than the Dodgers win two out of the next three, but it wouldn't, surprise me in the slightest bit if the Dodgers do win two out of three games. It wouldn't again.
0: surprise me. I just.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, talking about playing the percentages. I yeah. mean, I don't know. The Dodgers have home field advantage here and, and that helps a little bit. But I think, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe the, the more likely outcome is that it doesn't go back to Boston, but it's such a, I mean, I'm basically at 50-50 on that.
0: Well, let's let's go back to the first question of the show, which is that path back, because one thing that's that's up in the air right now is who's going to pitch in game four for Boston. Um, and in the grand scheme of things, this probably doesn't matter a ton. Uh, if the Red Sox win game three, they'll probably wind up winning at least one more game or they'll wind up winning another game out of the next four, no matter what happens. But Nathan Evaldi has been used twice out of the bullpen. Um, And he was their number three starter throughout the playoffs before this. And we've seen Alex Corrigo to Evaldi. We've seen him warm up price. He uh, pitched Eduardo Rodriguez for one third of an inning. Um, And they're carrying Drew Pomerantz right now. And I think I just heard Bill Simmons scream somewhere because I said Drew Pomerantz's name out loud. Uh, He has not pitched so far this, this series. Cora has said that if they sense a chance to slam the door in game three, this was not his exact wording, but this was the gist of what he said, they would, they would go back to Evaldi in relief and figure out game four later. And so, you know, if they don't, Evaldi's pitched a lot better than Rodriguez, certainly Pomerantz uh, down the stretch. Is that an opportunity for the Dodgers to sort of crack that door open?
2: Can I ask the question, which is, yeah. is there any chance that the Red Sox end up pulling the Curly Ogden gambit in Game 4? <laughs> I think it's possible if, oh. if they, I mean, I'm not sure if anyone trusts Pomeranz at this point. They could announce him and then, at you know, depending on what happens in Game 3 and who they use, they could use Iavaldi for a couple innings, they could use Joe Kelly for a couple innings, they would have potentially Barnes or Ryan Brazier, they could try to piece together that those nine innings. I just wonder if Alex Cora and all the other Boston decision-makers see the lineups LA has trotted out and wonder, like, is it worth trying, you know, to force, essentially, the Dodgers into using Friesen and Kemp again instead of starting Jock Peterson and Cody Bellinger and Max Muncie, particularly in a National League ballpark? Because I think, what, by the seventh inning in game one, LA was already out of, bench players. Maybe they would have handled it differently if they didn't have a DH to fall back on, but it's certainly something we've seen in the playoffs so far, and he might find that an easily manipulable situation.
0: There are two reasons why I don't like the Curly to gamut. One is th- when the Brewers did it... I never
1: thought I'd hear you say that sentence.
0: Well, in this very, very <laughs> specific situation, one is the Brewers did it because they needed to tilt the pinball machine to to. Change the circumstances of the series in their own favor because they were the underdog, and the Red Sox are in total control. They don't need to get cute. I think if you do something cute and it doesn't work, then all that does is is let the Dodgers back into the series when they might you know they might not have thought that they they had a path path back in. The other thing is this was the only thing I didn't like about the Brewers pulling this off in, in Game Five in the NLCS is this is so much easier to do when you. Only ha- when you're not in that middle three game set of a best of seven series, when you've got uh, no more than one more game after an off day or you're coming off an off day. And so they're going to like if they do something like that in game four, they got, they've got a game on either side of that. And if they don't use the bullpen, if they lose game three, they will have used the bullpen more than if they win. So, because you imagine this involves Porcello getting knocked out early. If Porcello gives them six or seven innings, they're probably going to win. So you're operating with a more tired bullpen to start with a game to come in game five. When if the Dodgers win, like if the Dodgers win that, then at worst they're in with a shout at, at three, two down with two games left and and anything can happen at that point. Or they, you know, if, the, if uh, they win games four to tie the series, then you're going into game five, potentially going down 3-2 with a bullpen that's been used a ton in games three and four. So I don't know if any of that made sense by the time it escaped my mouth, but I I just, I mean, it will be fun. I don't see it happening.
2: I think that was an unfortunately good point to damper my enthusiasm. <laughs>
0: Well, that's what I love to do, is just dampen people's enthusiasm. Yeah,
1: you just started to get us excited about this series, and now you're just snatching this hope away. Well, this
0: is the well, let me say this. The Curly Ogden gambit, if it, if they the Red Sox try it and fail, that's Los Angeles' path back into the series. So <laughs>
1: uh-huh, okay. there's
0: an obvious rooting interest <laughs> for all of us.
1: Yeah, well, I think what has made the use of, of all the impressive so far in the postseason is that— Cora hasn't had to sacrifice anything. He's managed to have the best of both worlds here. He's gotten him as a shutdown reliever three times already. And he's also used him as a starter twice and gotten length out of him there. And I think he's done a good job of managing the workloads and the scheduling and sort of having these preset times to use him, but being willing to adjust and Finding spots to bring him in when he's starting clean innings generally and not coming in with a bunch of guys on base, which he's not really used to doing. So he's managed to make him into this bullpen weapon without subtracting him from the rotation, which I think is important at this point because he's about as dependable a starter as the Red Sox have too. So I don't think you want to remove him from either side of that equation if you can help it. I'd
0: say one more thing that's that's really impressive about this is – Evaldi has turned. Well, well, what are the two things you know about Nate Ivaldi going into this series?
1: Well, he could get hurt at any time. Yeah. Well, okay. throws that's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> he throws
0: hard, and he's always hurt. And yeah. he's turned into an absolute workhorse, coming in on short rest, coming in on his throw day. And when he does start, he's, he's started two games, gone seven innings in the first, and six innings in the second. And I don't know, that's kind of that's the kind of pitcher I was sort of expecting him to be back in his Miami days, but it's. Cool to see him just being that that guy who can come in. He's he looks indefatigable. He looks like yeah. Trevor Bauer at this point.
1: Very well timed for his free agency. Oh, yeah. Which which will be a fascinating storyline. That this might be something too. we track. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing about Eovaldi is he is kind of the classic
2: pitcher whose stuff you would expect to play up in relief. Obviously, he's been great as a starting pitcher in these playoffs too, but I'm not necessarily so surprised that he's succeeding in these one inning stints when he can really just pump his fastball, even though he's not using it as much anymore. That, you know, hitting triple digits every time is hard for batters to connect with, no matter how straight it is. And being able to supplement that with a new cutter and his diverse array of pitches is just allowing him to succeed in relief like other more traditional pitchers might not be able to translate
1: as well.
0: All right. Anything else tactically about the series? Do you want to sort of pick up the, the pieces around baseball?
1: One last thing I'll say, because we might see Sale again. Presumably we will see Sale again, and we don't know what to expect out of him at this point. I've seen some people almost sheepishly start to bring up his postseason resume and say, well, people are pointing out that Kershaw and Price haven't pitched as well in the postseason. Why don't they point out that Chris Sale hasn't pitched as well in the postseason? And yeah, he does have a six-career ERA in the postseason. I think the reason that's not a storyline is because we're talking about six games and four starts and 24 innings, and I don't want to make too much of that. I will say, though, that I think it's more reasonable that there is some fire underneath the smoke here when we're talking about Sale than when we're talking about Kershaw and Price. Not because I think Sale is, you know, has a bad character and he's unclutch and he can't succeed at big moments, just because he has a long history. I've written about this. We talked about this of pitching worse down the stretch, particularly in September. He just hasn't been durable over the course of his career. It's kind of the one complaint you can make about what is otherwise a really sterling career. Innings wise, he's up there with the the top workhorses in baseball since he joined the rotation, but he has consistently faded down the stretch. And obviously that has been the case this year, whether it's his velocity or Going on and off the DL a couple times with shoulder issues and then the uh, belly button going to the general hospital saga. Because
0: he was <laughs> pooping his soul out. And- yeah.
1: So put all that together. And I think there is something of a pattern to him where you can say he's generally by the time the calendar rolls around to this point in the year, not quite at his peak anymore. And again, it's not a mental thing or a character thing. It's probably a physical thing. And so if you want to ding one of these pitchers for perhaps not being at his best in October, I would say Sale is the most likely to have that be an actual attribute of him that, you know, I would put some stock in. But again, small sample so far, and he could change that with one good start in the series.
0: There's got to be at least one. And now that Price is good in the playoffs and Kershaw, we've sort of accepted (laughs) that the pendulum will swing. However, Mm -hmm. there's got to be one unclutch ace in baseball. So it might as well be Chris Sale. (laughs) <laughs> um, I will say a lot of his post-season struggles have to do with Jose Altuve in game one of last year's, uh, ALDS when Altuve was, I mean, Altuve would have hit two home runs off Bob Gibson in that game like that. Nobody was getting Altuve at at that point that, I mean, and sale has thrown so few innings that one bad start can completely skew the numbers. So, uh, I, I, you know, maybe there's something to the physicality thing, or maybe he's just like you said, maybe he's still getting over his, uh, belly button incident Mm -hmm. yes um anyway you all thoughts about start times either feels like we talk about this a lot or we don't talk about this a lot baseball talks about this a lot that what about the kids who who aren't gonna you know aren't gonna be able to stay up to watch the end of the, the world series how are they ever gonna get interested in baseball and i don't know like i wasn't allowed to stay up to watch the end of the world series when i was a little kid and Certainly, I have no interest in baseball now. I just think this is a, like <laughs> you can't a job you,
1: for you, just you, a paycheck.
0: You can't move the you can't move the games back because one of the teams in the World Series is on the West Coast, and so if ever you know, <laughs> even starting the game at 5.09 5-0, on the on the West Coast, like half the people, half the Dodgers fans are in traffic at that point. And now, mm-hmm. if you want to talk about how our society is built to have make make work jobs, where one in you know, however many people works in PR or marketing or whatever, and we all work 45 hours a week when automation should have conferred benefits of leisure time onto working Americans, we could talk about that. We could talk about reducing the American work week, but as long as we (laughs) live under the circumstance with the country as big east to west as it is, I don't see a better solution. So
1: yeah. I don't know that we can blame Rob Manfred or even Bud Selig before him for time zones. Maybe that in a is, general <laughs> sense. I don't
0: well, know. Well,
1: yeah, for other things. But this particular, I I just don't know. That no one's ever going to be happy because if you start earlier, then there are going to be West Coast people who are not in a position to watch the games. It's not in prime time for them. And I don't know, unless you want to just say the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And let's just... Go full East Coast bias That's here. That's such. I was
0: like, that is the specific take. The utilitarian that bugs argument. bugs me the most. It is such a lives in Manhattan take. Civilization ends at the at the Hudson River and nothing west of that is worth considering. Like, I don't know, blame Walter O'Malley. Like, maybe we should only have baseball east of the Appalachians. But yeah. unfortunately, that's not the world we live in anymore.
1: I'm looking at the Hudson River out my window as we speak and I can see beyond it. So I know that there is a country. This is why it. we spent this is why we spent
0: two years talking about Hamilton as a as a, a country when it was only playing in one theater in one city. And it's just this New York mon. Like as much as as I look down my nose, I'm an East Coast person. I look down my nose at, at everything west of the Mississippi. But like this is New York cultural hegemony, and I am sick of it. <laughs> so I hope they move the game. I hope they start the World Series at 10 p.m. on the East Coast next year.
1: <laughs> wow, you're an East Coaster now. Solidarity, East Coast solidarity. I mean, you're not an East Coaster, no, but I'm, you're an Eastern time zone yes, person. Yes, I'm an
0: Eastern time zone person. Um, but I'm okay staying up late. Um, yeah. You want to talk about the Mets GM search at all? Just real quick. We, got, we do have some, uh, some around the league news. The, the Twins and Reds have new managers. The, the Mets. Uh, and the Blue Jays. Oh, the Blue Jays hire the manager?
1: Yeah, <laughs> new manager news coming fast and furious.
0: I totally miss that.
1: Who they got? <laughs> Montoya. Charlie Montoya. <laughs> Ray's bench coach. Zach, you have any Charlie Montoyo takes I
2: learned who he was this <laughs> afternoon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's a a consistent is there a, a theme to these managerial hirings? We've seen Rocco Baldelli, we've seen Montoyo. So I guess Raise people is one possible theme, just because Kevin Cash has worked out well and hey, the opener is spread everywhere, so maybe mm-hmm. raise people should spread up everywhere. And then I don't know, you have David Bell who's former player who's been managing in the minors, which is kind of like an old school yeah, model. very
0: traditional model. And I, then you have- I, I you hated know, speak- David Bell when he was on the Phillies; He was so <laughs> terrible.
1: <laughs> and then speaking of old school, you got Brad Ausmus now with the Angels, which- was kind of curious because you'd think that after getting under the yoke of Sosha for two decades, they might have gone polar opposite manager and they kind of went with someone who has at least sort of an old school another, reputation. Yeah,
0: another completely by the book former catcher.
1: Yeah. So I don't know what to make of these hirings. They don't seem to fit into a single box.
2: I think for me, the most interesting is Rocco Baldelli, just because I remember when he first came up, I think he's probably the first manager who I can say that about. And I just remember thinking he was going to be awesome. I remember reading lots of pieces about him and, of course, the struggles he went to, went through with his illnesses. And he gave a really great press conference today. I have high hopes for him and especially the situation he finds himself in is an interesting one in a a bad division, a team that has a lot of potentially young talent. Uh, so I'm excited to see what happens with that situation. On the other hand, I think the Osmus one confuses me. I sort of pushed that out of my mind and still thought the Angels had an opening because it <laughs> seemed almost like something uh, a, a parody headline would write, that they're just replacing a show, uh, a like-for-like like social replacement. I don't know. The, it's been a, a strange
0: hiring nothing season else, thus far. easier to fire than, than Socia. <laughs> Um, yes. Yeah, the Baldelli, the Baldelli move is what I'm in tr- most interested to, Particularly because from from what I understand, they the Twins got the uh, Derek Falvey, Thad Levine front office uh, set up, and it wasn't that Paul Molitor wasn't receptive to like analytics is such a it's a meaningless word, but like you know what I mean if if I say that it's not that it's not that. uh, Paul Molitor wasn't receptive to that. It was that he had trouble communicating that, and one of and Baldelli gave like a two minute answer at his press conference about the importance of communication with his players and and building trust and getting that rapport down. So you know, I think that sort of jives with not just that he isn't afraid of math, you know, when we think of new school managers, but stressing communication, understanding that this is a middle management job, that this is about. You know, teaching and building morale. And it seems, just from his opening, You know, we'll see how this goes over the next season or two, but it seems that he understands that his job is, is man management primarily. And I think that's a, a very good mentality for a modern major league manager to have. Um, and then we'll probably laugh at this no matter what the outcome, um, after the World Series a little bit. The Mets are down to their last two candidates for general manager. They have Brody Van Wagenen, who is... Uh, I mean, we need to do an entire segment on this. Uh, if he gets hired, he is the agent for Jacob de not just Jacob de Gram, but Johannes Cespedes and several other members of the Mets organization, like something like eight or more. Uh, and he's audition or he's interviewing to become their boss. And so it's down to him and Heim Bloom, who's uh, the general manager of the Rays. Uh, of- a personage Sean Fennessy described as Zach Cram like. So we have Zach Cram versus Bobby Van Wagenen. If they if they hire Brody Van Wagenen, we're gonna uh, this is gonna result in a new new name for new nickname for our producer. So,
1: um, I'm this, sure he can separate those two sides of his profession oh and uh, mean, fairly I'm, represent all of his clients on the Mets while being the Mets GM. Well, whatever happens, he's <laughs> I see gonna no conflict there.
0: Right, whatever happens, if he gets the job, he's gonna. He's obviously going to recuse himself. Yeah, well, no, we'll get, you know, get out of his financial stake at CAA and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and pass off all his clients. You know, we saw Dave Stewart go from being an agent to, uh, and which not sure how well that went. Not a fraught (laughs) transition at all. And that wasn't, he wasn't as nearly as entangled with the Diamondbacks and their players as Van Wagenen is with the Mets. I mean, if I were Jacob Degrom, I'd fire him right now just for interviewing. Like, how do you how do you trust this guy when when he's willing to switch sides during this critical part of your of your career when you're trying to either engineer a trade or an extension? It's just it's outrageous. Um,
2: <laughs> you know who else he represents in the Mets organization? Uh, Tebow. Tebow. Ooh, this yeah, so. could increase the Tebow odds of appearing in the majors, which I already thought were somewhat you know, unexpectedly fairly high to begin with. But because this relationship already exists, if he gets hired, I would bet some amount of money on Tebow playing in the major leagues in 2019.
0: I would have bet that anyway. I mean, so CAA has has Cespedes, uh, DeGrom, Noah Syndergaard, and Tebow. So the four most important players on the Mets are all potentially clients of their future GM. It's... We'll see how this works out. They're down to two, unfortunately, for Doug Melvin and his mustache. Um, <laughs> this whole situation is, in true Mets fashion, risible. Um, so that wraps up our Around the League segment. We'll get back to more of that when the, the World Series is over. Uh, so are we going to be wrapping up the World Series and, and going full on d- into, into full Law Mets mode
1: next time we talk on Monday? I will say no. I will say there will still be baseball. Okay, Zach?
2: I also say no, but I think I have probably been the most optimistic on the Dodgers' chances thus far, and I still think they'll lose the series at this point.
0: Okay, I'm doubling down on somebody asked me if I was, a, if I was being paid by the Red Sox front office. You will never know, by the way, I conduct this podcast throughout this World Series. So, all right, I'm saying it's not, it's not coming back. Uh, you guys are both saying it will. We will find out the next time we speak on Monday. As always, it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining me
1: yeah are you sure you don't want to talk a little more about the shorter american work week because i like the sound of that i mean we can yes i mean but unfortunately <laughs> i guess we should shorten our work week <laughs> yeah, this episode yeah, yeah
0: i like that um okay. no I, I mean obviously i'm interested in talking about that but you know i'm shaking my <laughs> we'll fist at, at our management um yeah <laughs> we have to do that off the clock so let's get off the clock and, and let's go plot the revolution and i'll talk to you guys after the weekend
2: all right until then